becomes like a fleeting memory. Whatever you grab just turns to dust. Like eye contact with a stranger straight around the corner. It's a dream that you get to make real. I was going to say, I feel like I have a pretty diverse wardrobe, but that's just relative to you. <laughs> I make everyone look good. Yeah. I don't think I own a single, I think maybe I have one white shirt these days. Okay. All right. Ready for this? I think so. Okay. Hey. Hey. Cheers. cheers to the shores. To the shores. What's on the shores today? Oh, man. I think... Uh, I think we should talk about you uh, you losing your job. There's a lot of crazy stuff in that, and some yeah. some fun some fun places to go. Definitely. Well, thanks for telling everybody. Yeah, just ran out Sorry. of the gate. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt it's, stuck up the bathroom, and they they fired him. So <laughs> <laughs> that would be an impressive way to get fired. That would be honestly. Hey, we're gonna have to let you go. <laughs> um, I turned up the gain a little bit. I hope yeah. that's not too high. No. I wouldn't know. How do you sound good to to you? I sound good all the time. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So I got laid off. Um, Sort of, maybe we can kind of get into the dynamics that led to it. Um, The tech industry as a whole, really sort of following suit with Elon Musk, uh, cutting the Twitter workforce down by like 75% or something. Mm -hmm. There's just been a lot of like Amazon, Google, Microsoft have all laid off tens of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and you know, I don't think I don't think it's necessarily the purview of our podcast to try to analyze why exactly that is. But there were some other things that were taking place. One of which was that <clears throat> the the role that I was in for the last year and a half was kind of a big bet. The company mm-hmm. was a big bet, and that bet was that we could start a private tech incubator and start 10 startup companies and (laughs) get them all off the ground and into market. Mm -hmm. Um, They're probably betting on like three or four of us to work. Right. right. In hindsight, it just sounds insane, (laughs) but it was really fun. And Mm -hmm. um, the, the people that we hired were really great. And we actually did get all 10 into market. We didn't get all 10 into revenue. Mm. Uh, but really getting a startup into revenue in the first year is kind of an insane wish anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened is simultaneously for the, the forces that were causing the tech industry to lay off a bunch of people also applied to us. And for a lot of reasons that we don't necessarily need to get into that, my company or the company I was working for sort of fell apart completely at, at the same time. So my understanding is that of the uh, about a hundred people that we had there, I think there might be like three left. Oh wow! So they shut almost everything down. Mm-hmm. So that was really a crazy plane crash to be a part of. Uh, it happened about a month ago, and we hadn't really brought it up on the podcast. <clears throat> uh, just wasn't sure if it was. I don't know. It's sensitive, I mm-hmm. guess. You know, maybe that's what we need to talk a little bit about. Is like, I think I was averse to talking about it because I feel like it reflects poorly on me. Mm. Well, I mean, it does make sense. Because I think even in your resistance to kind of get into some of the details, uh, which is understandable because it's not about 
the company or, you know, how they had did things. I mean, cause really in the startup world, you're kind of, you're making big bets and sometimes they work out and sometimes they don't. And that's just kind of, that's just kind of part of it. So it's like, this is not a, uh, I would say a, what do you call it? A, a knock on the, on that company specifically, but mm. you know, doing what they were doing right now during this market and what's happening. It's, yeah. it's just kind of, well, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of things I could say about why things went the way that they did. And I've been reflecting a lot about it over mm-hmm. the last <clears throat> number of weeks. I feel like I got something stuck in my throat. <clears throat> Let me take some whiskey here. <laughs> it, cu- it cures everything. Just burn it right out. Athlete's foot, everything. <laughs> <laughs> I would never pour my whiskey on my feet. <laughs> you drink it and it oh, cures it. cures it. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, when you take a big bet, the result is likely going to be colossal. Mm-hmm. either on the positive side or the negative side. And I was somewhat prepared for that when I joined. Mm-hmm. And obviously I was hoping that that was going to be a positive thing. Um, but I don't think that I was, as it started falling apart, I was still living from a position of hope mm-hmm. from a position of, we can still make this work, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't think that I was being, you know, I think there was a voice inside of me at some point where when I had seen enough signs and enough red flags and they did a couple of riffs on the way down, um, which is a new term to me. It means reduction in force, basically a mass layoff. Yeah. I got riffed in 2003. So did you? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So they did a couple of those and there was like a small voice in the back of my head that said, you probably need to start looking around for something to fall back on because this could go down. Yeah. But I didn't, I stayed focused on what we were doing and chose to stay hopeful and maybe foolishly. So, Mm. um, so maybe that's something we could try to dig into a little bit. And then I want to talk about failure in general and how we deal with it and how it is both true and false at the same time. Um, why would you say foolish? Like what, what foolishly hopeful because well, if there's something inside of me that's saying, Hey, this is going down. You need to be, you you need to find something to fall back on. Be ready, Hmm. be looking, begin conversations about new roles. And then I don't do that. And I tell myself, I'm, well, I'm not going to do it because I'm hopeful. This is going to still work. Yeah. I use the term foolishly hopeful, but maybe that's an oxymoron. Hmm. Maybe it isn't that I was hopeful. Maybe it's that I was losing hope, but didn't allow myself to talk to myself about it in that way. Hmm. Maybe the foolishness was claiming hope when really I knew the direction it was going and the hope needed to be moved to something else needed to be moved to say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to cast a, a net out for other positions at other companies so that if this goes down, my family's taken care of. See, that's, it's interesting because it seems that there's a certain strength in being foolishly hopeful, right? Because you're, you're all in and you're not looking for the exits. It's like, 
that's the you know because once you start looking for the exits your attention is uh diverted and you're you're no longer fully engaged i don't think it's i don't think it's really possible to to <clears throat> to be looking for exits and being right. fully engaged well and maybe that's <clears throat> part of why i wasn't looking for exits because i i did want to remain fully engaged yeah but at the point that i noticed that well <clears throat> whether i keep my job here isn't up to me that's true yeah. you know it isn't as though <clears throat> I, i'm the ceo or or this is my company and it isn't as though it's like a an endeavor that can be done by yourself like perhaps maybe music could mm. or art or something like that it relies on <coughs> other things yeah and is it foolish to remain all in when you're watching it go down mm. yeah that makes sense well I mean that, that's kind of the you know, on the other side of it is in my shoes where I'm the, I am the CEO. It's like, there's a sort of almost foolish hope, hopeless hopefulness that you have to have, you know, as an entrepreneur, it's almost like a, uh, <laughs> uh, a, uh, what do you call it? Stigma, uh, uh, a character, <laughs> a character necessity. <laughs> mm, yeah. You know, and, and cause even like, you know, as you were talking about how, the company was going and you know as as somebody who has been in that space as far as like oh wow this could really go to shit mm -hmm. <laughs> quickly you right. know uh but at the same time i have to keep this keep the ship moving in a certain direction you know code's one of those things it's like you have to be somewhat foolishly optimistic in a sense or else you're just gonna get crushed under the the anxiety and the uh, all the things that could actually go wrong. Right. You know, so, but then I could think of, you know, someone's who's working for me. And I think that's part of the, of a good leader. You think of like a generals and that kind of stuff. Hey, this might mean certain death or we could be, or we could have victory, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So if, if a, if a soldier's going, okay, well I need to find the exits. Well, somehow that general needs to right. motivate the soldiers right. in a direction mm -hmm. to, you know, to almost sometimes certain death, you know, and that's something that is, it's like, how, why is it that we take on these causes? Why is that as a part of our, maybe, maybe even just DNA as men specifically, you know, there's something about a call to like the impossible, mm -hmm. the, um, the ship could sink, but I'm going to go down with it kind of thing. Is or, that a call to commitment? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is seen as honorable, right? As the yeah. captain of a ship, you go down with the ship. Mm -hmm. It's your responsibility, mm -hmm. life or death. And there is something, I think, appealing about that to men. Yeah. To receive the honor of a good death. What's the um, the thing in, like... Japanese samurais or whatever they um, fall on their own sword. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. the only honorable death after Har defeat. Harry Carey. Yeah. yeah, is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that that the whole thing got brought up the Ronin and uh, I forgot what show I was watching. Oh, this we're watching Persons of Interest with the kids right now. It's so good. Uh, but basically, like the main character is kind of a Ronin. He's like a, a masterless samurai. Mm. 
and he's out, he's just going around helping people. Yeah, it's really I don't know. There's a romantic aspect of of that <clears throat> idea, right? Where the odds are always against him, yet he's always out there helping people, pushing back. Yeah, maybe because that's what life feels like all the time in general. The odds are always against you, mm. and yet civilization gets built. Yeah, and we want to be a part of that. There's a sense that that all odds are overcome overcomable through hard work and attention and commitment and responsibility. Right. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's, you know, what we're discussing in terms of my company kind of crash landing or crashing, mm-hmm. uh, is that there's also trade-offs in, in, in those sorts of odds. I mean, if you, if you choose something to be unwaveringly committed to, then everything else that you have responsibility for in your life is going to suffer to some degree, you know, which we talk a lot about that you and I, about how it seems like most successful men can't keep families. Mm. They can't keep wives. Their children become estranged. And maybe that's part of the trade-off. If they're putting their endeavors, if they're, if their ultimate commitment is to their endeavors, then everything else Mm. suffers. Yeah. So maybe one thing that I'm talking about is, well, at the point that I realize that I can't be unwaveringly committed to this because mm-hmm. it's not my decision whether or not I stay. Um, and also, perhaps, I have higher priorities, too. And, like, and I have higher priorities. And mm-hmm. it might be that the owner of the company who is maybe he is unwaveringly committed to making this work. Mm -hmm. Maybe something he has to sacrifice in the path toward making it work is getting rid of me. Mm -hmm. You know, so when my, when the control is out of my hands and I have children and other commitments and responsibilities, I have to do right by them. Mm -hmm. And I think I should have been more prepared Hmm. for this outcome, having sensed it coming. Yeah. It's so hard to to be able to sort of uh, read the weather, you know, because sometimes right. storms come and it it knocks things around, some trees and stuff like that. Right. And you just, you know, put the power lines back up and <laughs> put the trees by the side of the road and <laughs> they come by and fire the city and manager. And yeah, fire the city manager. Oh, golly, that's a whole other thing. I mean, or maybe it's like, um, I'm going to borrow this analogy from, Brett Weinstein, you just said on this last episode of his, but he said, we've all had the experience where we're feeling really sick, like really, really badly sick. And then almost suddenly Mm. you just, you kind of wake up and you're like, Oh, I'm better, you know? And he's talking about, um, your immune system and how that's an indication that your immune system has figured out how to sufficiently get on top of the situation. And at that point you get well really quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, it's like that in our endeavors as well. Sometimes right before things get good, (laughs) all seems lost. Yeah. You know? So I think that that was part of what I was hoping is, okay, they've done a couple of riffs. Maybe that's going to increase our burn rate give us more runway mm-hmm. and we can really actually get this t- to work. Yeah. Um, it, it was five riffs later that 
I got taken out, which I'll, I'll leave that statement with no comment other than that's just an insane way to let lay off a hundred or 95 people. Um, yeah, we can't see what's coming. We can't see the future, you know, <laughs> uh, but we have this sense that there is something great around the corner. And maybe this moves us into a conversation about failure and what we can do with that. Because <clears throat> I mean, I, I would like to contend that it is part of the human condition that we will suffer, mm. but it is also part of the human condition that we have this feeling that something great is going to occur. Mm-hmm. And that might be, sometimes we feel like it's going to be next week. Sometimes we feel like it's going to be in two decades, but we feel potential and we feel capacity to do great things. Mm. And that sense is always lurking out there. And I think we're trying to bring it into reality. And after I got laid off, I decided immediately like, okay, I'm going to take a couple of weeks and give myself some rest and just sort of reflect on what happened. That was a whirlwind of a ride. Um, and then really dig in to start finding my next thing. And for those couple of weeks, I was fairly relaxed and, and then I sort of started to lose that sense of hope that there's something good coming around the corner. Hmm. And something dark set in, which was something like, everything I've done has failed. Hmm. And that really took me down quite a bit further. Like that, that was really hard to contend with. Hmm. And I think I'm still contending with it to some extent. Hmm. What's well, interesting, like, I mean, how... When you say it's like something dark kind of ascended on you, mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds <clears throat> kind of very om- ominous almost. You right. Know? <clears throat> and I, there's a lot of examples of this in literature and in movies that it's like right before <clears throat> one of my favorite scenes is in uh, uh, the two towers uh, where uh, Aragorn and the King of Rohan are there and, and uh, Aragorn remembers uh Gandalf saying on the third day at sunrise, mm-hmm. I'll be there kind of basically, you know, and Aragorn remembers this. He goes to the king is ride with me one last time for glory. And like all this guy, everyone gets all pumped up and the king thinks it's to death. But Aragorn had a hope that Gandalf said he would be here on the third day in the morning, look to the East. And so, so the king is going out there to the death and Aragorn's going out there for the hope. Hmm. And so it's, it's, it's just interesting. The same situation can actually have two different perspectives. And sure enough, they're fighting. They're basically going to die and look to the east. And there's uh, Gandalf. So it's been a long time since I've read that book or seen mm-hmm. that, that movie. But yeah. remind me if this is true. Yeah. It's, an, it's interesting in part because had they not ridden out there in mm-hmm. hope and in death... Gandalf coming wouldn't have mattered. Yeah. It required both them being there, trusting that he would come and mm-hmm. him being able to accomplish coming in yeah. order for the victory to occur. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's the, it's, that's such a beautiful combination of mm-hmm. hope 
plus a willingness to die plus a trust and a promise Hmm. that allows the victory. Yeah. That's beautiful. The trust and the promise. Cause there's also another scene in the, in the last one where that same King is before his men and says to the death and everybody, all the horsemen yell to the death. And you get this sort of like finality, like, like we're all going to die right now. Hmm. And it's interesting too, even in that sense, there was hope that came in, but they were going into it as if they were already dead. <clears throat> and so th- there's, there's this interesting, like little parts where people like, you know, you, you go into something accepting your fate and actually something beautiful comes out of it or you end up dying, hmm. you know? And then there's other instances where you go into a situation that's almost certain death, but you have a certain hope. Like at some point, something's going to happen, whether it's a, a promise that was made to you or, you know, it could be even a fool's promise that, you know, that you're, that you're going to, you know, it's like, there's, there's so many great analogies in Lord of the Rings hmm. of all these sort of like ideas. See, when I hear the, the warriors chant to the death, yeah. what I think is not that they're going in knowing that they're going to die. Hmm. They're going in knowing that they are going to give up everything that they sure. have. Mm-hmm. And whether or not that results in death at that point doesn't matter Yeah, because you're going to give everything. Hmm. And if you die, well, you gave everything. Mm-hmm. So, so be it. And if you don't and you gave everything and that it results in victory, then hallelujah. And it kind of reminds me if like, if you expand the time frame of that, what if you lived that way? Mm, yeah. And you said, I'm going to, well, I'm going to live to the death, mm. which is what we do anyway, whether we acknowledge it, <laughs> True. you know? Yeah. So I'm going to give everything I mean, maybe we, in more um, cheesy ways, say things like "live like there's no tomorrow," mm-hmm. you know, "dance like no one's watching" or whatever. But it's it's coming yeah. at a similar idea yeah. that I'm going to give everything that, to what I'm doing until I die because I can't imagine a better way to live. Mm. Yeah, something I'll repeat. I, I, I think I said this maybe a hundred episodes ago, which is literally true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But something my dad, when I was playing basketball, that he was one of my, he was a coach of mine growing up. And something that's always stuck with me is that whole idea of you leave it all on the court. Yeah. And whether you win or lose, if you leave it all on the court, you can be proud of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I just remember that feeling of losing and not leaving it all on the court. Mm-hmm. Like I know what that feels like. And I also know what it feels like to lose and leave it all on the court. Like it's a visceral understanding of like, nope. I left it all on the court. And so that's, that's, there's that, that's that same idea of, of when you're, you're living your life, you know, are you leaving it all on the court? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it might mean different things at different seasons of life too. Maybe just, you know, getting up and exercising is, is what you have to do. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. that's, that's what you can do today. Mm-hmm. Um, well, before it gets too far gone, yeah, let's totally return right. back to this to my statement about the darkness. Mm. I mean, I think that there is, there's all kinds of perspectives you can take on things. You know, one of which is maybe a time frame perspective. You can take the scene of 
the warriors yelling to the death and I can extrapolate that into a way to live mm. and say to, I'll live to my own death. Um, there's another way that you can play tricks on yourself mm. and you can use this, I think in the positive, but your, your brain or soul or shame or whatever it is can use it on you in the negative. Mm. And so something inside of me became sad and despondent that yet another thing had failed. Yeah. And, and then I can start in retrospect using particular measurements mm -hmm. to say how it had failed, you know? So like take our podcast, for example, when times are good, neither of us measure the success of this podcast based upon number of listeners or downloads or mm -hmm. shares or Instagram followers. Mm -hmm. That's irrelevant to us. Yeah. What we really like is the consistency and ritual of our lives mm. of doing this. Yeah. And that has paid us dividends, I think, mm -hmm. per personally. Mm -hmm. That's why we do it. Yeah. But then when something inside of me says, everything you've done has been a failure, look. Look at your podcast, 149 episodes, and look at your numbers. <laughs> They're shitty. Uh, uh -huh. Like... You're in, and my mind starts measuring everything against a different set of metrics. Mm -hmm. You know, I say, okay, this last company failed. To what extent was I responsible for its failure? Hmm. Which I think is a, a good and valid question to ask. Yeah. And I've learned a lot by asking that of this last particular role. But then my mind goes for, back further and says, well, your company before that, when you joined, they got acquired two weeks later. Big payday for everybody except for you. Hmm. And then over the course of six years, that company got slowly dismantled and assimilated into the larger company. And by the time you left, the company was gone and the name was buried. Hmm. Now, I don't think of my time in that endeavor that way. Mm -hmm. In reality, I joined at a semi-low level and left at a senior management level. Hmm. And I had a lot of successes. I sold a lot of very expensive projects that were designed and delivered successfully and did great things for the companies we did them for. Mm. But my mind switched and said, well, you know, no, if you look at the brand of the studio that you joined and how that's no longer there, mm -hmm. that was a sinking ship. Mm. And then I go back further and I say, well, what was I doing before that? Right. My own companies that I was building and you know, we talk a lot about <clears throat> um, how unlikely it is for a startup to succeed. Mm. And even if it succeeds, it's unlikely that it makes money. Mm. <laughs> Spotify, I don't think made money until like last year or something. Mm. I had three startup companies that were all making money. Yeah. Like that's incredible. Yeah. But my mind goes, but not enough to support you or your family. And then once you got another job, not enough to hire somebody to make them work. And so you shut them down another failure, you know, so my, I, that's why I say the darkness sort of came in, mm. it came in and started saying, well, why don't you look at it this way? Mm. And if you look at it this way, you're going to feel like a failure. And I don't know why it is exactly that. That seems natural to me. And maybe it's something to do with, uh, Jordan Peterson's lobster. 
when you suffer a defeat, your serotonin levels oh, go sure. down mm-hmm. and it changes everything from your physical stance to the way that you think about things. Mm-hmm. And you start thinking about things negatively and that's very destructive. I think, well, maybe I'll pause there for a second. I do want to talk about the value of considering failure, mm-hmm. but what do we make of this? switch to seeing things differently (coughs) in light of defeat. It's There's a, there's a great CS Lewis does a great job of this in um, uh, the screw tape letters. Mm -hmm. And there's a sort of part where, you know, it's basically uh, an elder demon talking to a, a younger demon. And the whole idea is that this older demon's trying to school this younger demon in how to be most effective against humans and keeping them away from God, basically, you know? And it's, it's really fascinating because you can see that in our psychology in a sense of like, once you start kind of like giving, giving those voices a, uh, a priority in your, in your thinking, it really does take you down a spiral hmm. into hell, basically. Because hmm. if you follow that darkness, as far as the darkness goes, you're basically in hell. You're in a prison of your own. Well, there's something so self-evident about that. Mm-hmm. Like, whatever you follow will take you where you end up. <laughs> you know? What? That's so <laughs> weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it's... So, uh, but again, uh, there's a, there's a difference between that and also being in the darkness. Cause there's also, I think there's an important part of being able to experience that the mm-hmm. loss, yeah. the frustration, the, um, you know, even the horrific aspects of humanity that we, uh, inflict on each other, you know, in war and, hmm. um, you know, sexually or, you know, just, you know, physically, sexually, verbally, whatever it might be is like we do inflict a lot of hell on each other. And also we succumb to that in our minds yeah. and, and of ourselves too. So that's, to me, that's just kind of, there's something to, to be able to sit with it and to understand that and not to shy away from it. Because I think shying away from it, that kind of leads you to sort of a naivety as far mm-hmm. as what, how the world is mm-hmm. and how it works. Um, it's not butterfly and rainbows all the time. And there's a part that you need to be able to sit with that. But again, kind of a, one of our things we talk about a lot is paradoxes and the yin and the yang and the sort of the give and take. It's like being able to sit in the darkness, but also in the light. Hmm. And there has to be a balance. And I think if you don't, it, the more you understand the darkness, the more you can understand of the light in, the, in that sort of metaphor, metaphorical sense. Well, it seems the same for something like failure. And I'm wondering now about failure versus sin Hmm. in, in my sort of Southern Baptist upbringing, Mm -hmm. sin is a thing which you must never do. Hmm. But it's interesting because, so I've, I learned somewhat recently of the last five years, I suppose, probably through Jordan Peterson, that sin is sin. Sin is an archery term, which means to miss the mark. Hmm. And if you attempt to teach someone how to shoot an arrow at a target, 
they're going to miss the mark. Mm -hmm. And what do you do as soon as you miss the mark? You learn something Mm. about the way that you held the bow and the way that that affected where the arrow went and the The wind wind conditions. Mm -hmm. And you, you try again, you shoot again. And maybe you get a little bit closer, maybe you get further away. But the idea that you would take, let's say, a, a child and try to compose a set of drills to teach them to shoot an arrow such that they always hit the bullseye, mm-hmm. they would never learn. Mm-hmm. You don't learn through success. You learn through failure. And there's... Hmm. So, I think we mentioned his name last week, but Chamath, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> all in podcast. <laughs> I believe on uh, Lex Friedman's interview, he said that there's. I think he makes the statement that there's no such thing as failure. There's only learning, hmm. and I think at least as an overcorrection to the idea of failure being. Um, like some sin which you must never do that reflects poorly on you. Mm. Instead, let's look at it as, well, you, you're learning something. And I do think that we need to remember that because if I put it momentarily back in the biblical context, and at least the sort of modern idea that you must never sin, which I, I'm talking a little bit out of my league here, but I, I don't think that that's necessarily represented in the Bible, that, mm. that idea. Yeah. Um, but if you, must ne- if you must never sin, then you will never learn how to not sin, essentially. You will never learn how to hit the mark, hit the target. And, you know, if sin is missing the mark, then what marks are you shooting for? And maybe you're shooting for too high a mark. Maybe you're 12 years old and you're trying to be Mother Teresa and you shouldn't. Hmm. Maybe something that you need to learn is that you are far too insufficient and far too uh, unskilled for something like that. God, there's so many great examples of this. I mean, just even, you know, you think about King David, who is known as sort of like a man of God. I mean, uh, there's a specific name for him. I forgot what it was right now. Uh, but there's this whole idea of like you look at his life and all the, the amazing things that that he did and then also his amazing failures, you know, killing Uriah, which is uh, Bathsheba's husband. You know, there's a, uh, I don't know if we get the whole story of it, but uh, basically sent him to the front of the lines of the army in order for him to die so he could take the wife. And then he saw what he did and how wrong it was and it, you know, broke him. And there's so many examples of that too. And, you know, he wasn't allowed to build a temple because there was so much blood on his hand. It, you know, but the th- the thing you saw in his life, he was always correcting every mm-hmm. single time that that it's like, and I think there's something, you know, Moses, there's so many examples of pretty much everyone in the old Testament specifically, cause there's life stories in that there's just always sort of correcting. They're walking through life and living it and being active and there's a correction and there's mm-hmm. even examples of people who are trying to run away from responsibility, uh, whether it be Jonah running away from responsibility and finally reluctantly giving into responsibility to go tell right. somebody a message. Right. And even after he does that and they, they, they repent, he's just sort of frustrated and bummed because, you know, 
Yeah. <laughs> you did all, so it's, it's interesting to see that that theme it runs through not only biblical, but also, you know, just stories in general. It's like yeah. those who don't learn the lesson and, and keep continuing to move forward um, into a new lesson. It's like usually those people lead into ruin or they want to bring other people down into their own misery and destruction like they are. Yeah. They want everybody to be like them, miserable and misery loves company. Mm -hmm. Exactly. There, there does seem to be something that you can't get around, which is that you have to learn through failure. Mm. Like it's a very simple example, but you're not going to learn how to properly nail a nail into a piece of wood with a hammer Hmm. unless you hit your thumb a couple of times (laughs) or bend the nail in the first, like, Oh, right. (laughs) Right. It's, it's through the harsh reality of that failure that you learn the nuances that are required to do it successfully. Hmm. It isn't as though someone can just tell you all of the things that you need to know because it isn't a set of knowledge that you need. It's a set of experiences Hmm. that you need. And so you fail and you correct and you get better. And eventually you can become a master at whatever it is that you're trying to do. Hmm. But it requires the cuts and the bruises and the bloodshed. It requires, you know, (laughs) getting smacked in the face. It requires pain, which brings me back to that idea that we've been kicking around for a long time, which Mm. is that pain is information. Mm. You get hurt and you're forced to confront why. Yeah. Because it hurts, takes over your attention and then you learn Mm. and you improve if you're willing to. I mean, I guess the alternative is what you were just saying, which is like that hurt. I want everybody to hurt, which is, you know, malevolence. Mm. Or even, I mean, there's also another side of that too, is, is blind naivety where you're not really paying attention and you think everybody is, uh, wonderful and great. You know, maybe you can see that in their inner, inner being. I think that's true, but the world is a dangerous place and not everybody out there is wanting the best for you. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain, I mean, again, just uh, Jesus talks about like being wise as a serpent and uh, innocent as a lamb. Mm-hmm. There's a sort of like paradox that we have to be aware that the world is a dangerous place and not everybody wants the best for you, mm-hmm. but you also have to walk in the world as if there's, there's promise in each individual and person, mm-hmm. even though, even the worst people that you could, that you would deem bad or worse, you know, that, that there is, there's something hopeful in them. So it's, it's, it's really interesting because there's this idea of, well, I, I think of someone who is very naive and walking in the world, like they don't see the, the murder around the corner. Like we're watching persons of interest and you know, this lady's walking around the corner and John steps in and sort of saves her and he can't tell her why. And she's just like, well, I walk this way to work every single day. And there's two guys get trying to kill her at the end of the, block and he's like well how about we just go this way and she's like oh no i'm gonna go this way and so she goes and you know these two guys jump out he ends up saving her but (laughs) but there's this idea he didn't just let her die no (laughs) told you so (laughs) so. 
but there is something like, you know, you know, when you're walking around at night, I mean, it's, it's good to be kind of aware of your surroundings. Cautious. Cautious. Yeah. You should have a certain amount of like, <laughs> scared the shit out of him. Yeah. you should have a certain amount of like wariness. That's healthy. That's good. There's sort of a preservation in that. But it's also like you can't be that way around people who love you. You need to be able to recognize that when people are actually in your corner and wanting the best for you, that you need to let them Hmm. and trust them. And, uh, yeah, let them, let them kind of lead you even in some areas, you know, it's like, but again, I think that's, that's something trust is also earned. So again, you're looking at that paradoxical idea of, you know, being wary, but then also being trustful. Hmm. So maybe that's the compromise. Mm-hmm. You said be wise as a serpent and innocent as a lamb. Mm-hmm. Yet we are neither wise nor innocent. <laughs> totally. So maybe be wary and be trustful hmm. as much as you can. Well, I think there's also the maturity aspect of it too. I mean, as a child, you are, you are completely trusting, right. you know, for the most part, it, it also depends on what environment you grow up in, but uh, I don't know about that. You think a child is completely trusting of their parents, maybe of their parents. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, specifically their parents. Yeah. Of the world. Like, no, it's terrifying, you know, and, and you run back to your parent, you right. know, and, and then as they get older, they think, ah, I know what's best. And then they go out into the world all by themselves and they get hurt Yeah. or they, are they, are they experience success and who they come back to is like, Hey mom, dad, guess what? This happened. Or mm-hmm. wow, that's a dangerous place out there. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's what parents should be for their kids is that place to, to be able to a stepping stone or a, a, a base of operations that they mm-hmm. can go out and come back in, you know, but but they have to, they have to learn like you were telling at the beginning about experience. Like you have, they have to experience it to understand that, that you can't tell them right. that this is the way the world works. It's like, this is the way the world works, but you're going to have to experience it for yourself. You're going to have to learn it for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Give you as many shortcuts as I can mm-hmm. and as much resources as you need in home base. Mm-hmm. But I'm also going to kick you back out. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think we've, we've lost that as a society over the last number of decades. And that's very much the way that it was for me when I was growing up, Mm -hmm. which was basically like you wake up, you get some breakfast in the summer. My mom was like out, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you know, you can come back for a snack at lunch, Uh dinners at seven, Mm -hmm. stay out. Yeah. You know, figure out where, you know, do, do your thing. Mm -hmm. And I remember a lot of times feeling very annoyed by that. Like, I just want to be inside in the air conditioning. But my annoyance lasted about four seconds before I found something interesting to do or a friend rode by on his bike or whatever. And we would go off and, you know, there's no cell phones. Nobody had a cell phone, Mm -hmm. not even the parents. And so you learned how to navigate the world and you learned how to navigate your parents and you learned how to navigate time because you were going to be in a shit ton of trouble if you weren't back by seven. Uh Right. But I feel like... I've, I've been reading this book, a hunter gatherer's guide to the 21st century, uh, Brett and Heather's book. And they advocate this a lot in their, ch- their chapter about children, which is like children need unsupervised, unstructured play. 
They need to go out. They need to hurt themselves. They need, and, and they made the case that like, you know, even the, in the, even in the case that children get into fights or some child emerges as a bully, unsupervised children will sort that out fairly quickly in this day and age when we have adults swooping in to solve children's problems all the time. Well, they don't ever learn how to solve the problems for themselves. Mm. And they're going to leave childhood at the semi-arbitrary age of 18 and not be competent adults. Mm. You know, I'm worried about that. Yeah. And, and it's inevitable to some, to some degree. I mean, I've been trying... I've been trying to give my kids a lot more unsupervised time. Like my girls will finish school at about three fifty, And a lot of times they'll ask me if they can walk to Amy's ice cream with their friends or whatever. And I just say, yeah, that sounds great. Call me when you're done and I'll come get, pick you up. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of me that's really worried about that. Hmm. Not worried for them. I think they're going to be fine, but worried that especially as a divorced dad, hmm. I'm going to be called irresponsible, especially if something bad does happen yeah. and that that's somehow going to be used against me legally mm -hmm. to take my children from me or extract money from me or something. Mm -hmm. You know, I know you've had some, uh, you're not divorced, but you've had some <laughs> run-ins with that just <laughs> with the judgment of other parents and the way that you yeah. allow your children to do what you allow them to do. And that's, totally. that's really hard. But it's, it's hard, but I mean, at the same time, I think like you, I do understand the value of that. And I don't mind, I mean, you're kind of in a little bit different situation in a sense, but that judgment doesn't bother me because like, I mean, obviously now I'm kind of towards the latter end of raising kids right now, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> but, but seeing the effects of their independence that they have and abilities <clears throat> and stuff like that, yeah. that's something that's sort of gratifying in a sense. Yeah. Like, like I know that my kids are, are capable. Right. Have I prepared them for everything? No. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you can, am I a great, great dad? It's like great parent. It's like, well, I've done pretty good. I think, you know, it's like, <laughs> hopefully and I think that's as much as a parent can do. It's like, you're not perfect. You're not going to give your kids everything that they need. But the thing is, is like, did you do your best to do that? Hmm. I think that's, that's something that every parent, cause like, I also see parents like get so down on themselves because they haven't, they don't feel like they did it perfect. And it's like, it's not about being perfect. It's about creating opportunities for your kids. And, mm -hmm. and you're not going to, there's so many circumstances, you know, like, you know, running a business, starting a business, you know, Alice and I, it's like, there's a lot of things probably our kids missed out on because, you know, we're entrepreneurs, you know, and that's right the life that we live and they're going to miss out on certain opportunities. You well, know? that's so true. And <clears throat> you know, just like your kids missed out on certain opportunities because of the way that you've chosen to live your life. And mm -hmm. my kids have missed out of, uh, on opportunities because they have divorced parents and you know, every, every individual has an infinitely complex, unique of circumstances. Totally. Mm -hmm. And I think because that's true, what you should do for your kids is work hard to make them as, 
competent and anti-fragile and familiar with risk and familiar with pain and familiar with discipline and the success that comes from it, that they can through out of their unique complex circumstances, go tackle the world Mm -hmm. because the world is a massive set of unique complex circumstances (laughs) that are going to be thrown at them. And that's what they need to be prepared for. I mean, I almost kind of want to push back. Like you said earlier that you, you need to give your kids opportunities and maybe I see what you mean by that, but I kind of don't think it's about giving them opportunities. I think it's preparing them to take on opportunities when they come and yeah. maybe sort of the trial run from that for that is to give them some opportunities yeah. and teach them how to, how to take them on. But I think that was one of the ways way I was using yeah. opportunities like, is if you don't allow your kids to have the opportunity to be in a situation where it is a little bit questionable, dicey, dicey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they won't know how to, how to uh, navigate that or where, you know, to, whether it be a fight or, um, crossing streets, you know, going to a business and ordering their own hamburger and Mm -hmm. (laughs) all that kind of stuff, you know, like that's something that, you know, even whenever, you know, the kids would go to Medici, like I'd always make them order their own drinks. Like, Mm. you know, what, what do you want? And they're like three or four, you know, Mm. I want a hot chocolate. (laughs) I don't want to say anything to, you know, know, it's like, no, no, you need to, you need to order for yourself. Yeah. I don't know if my parents did that for me, but I definitely did that with my kids when they were fairly young, especially if they wanted something that annoyed me. I'd be like, That's awesome. <laughs> you, you, you can go order that for yourself. <laughs> and then I, I could it. see them like struggling with the, do I want the ranch for my pizza more than I don't want to talk to a stranger at the counter? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to go talk to the stranger at the counter, you know? And then nine times out of ten, bonus for me, they just give it to them for free because they're cute little kids, you know? (laughs) That's great. Well, maybe we should circle back around to the whole, like, um, losing your job and kind of Mm -hmm. how that all sort of ties into that sort of, you know, opportunity and disappointment, but also the, 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 the darkness that, that kind of, comes in sometimes whenever, you know, something that didn't go the way that you thought it would be. And, and again, like you, you, you kind of said that you were, you felt you were being a little bit naive in where, in how things were unfolding. Yeah. Like, how does that, like, you know, if, if you were even like coaching your kids through something like that, like, what would mm. you, what would you tell them or how would you help them through that? Well, I don't know. I'll take a stab. This isn't necessarily how I would help my kids, but mm-hmm. when the darkness sets in on yourself, I think you need to remind yourself to look at the way that you're seeing things and compare that to the way that you saw them previously mm-hmm. and notice if you're measuring things using different sets of data And if you are, well, okay, fair enough. Look at these new sets of data that you're using to make a negative view, a dark view now and say, okay, I've measured it. I see it. I get the point. 
now look at that in the context of the way that you used to measure it. And what does it net out to? Mm. And, and what is it that you want to do now with it? Okay. You know, maybe y- your podcast ha- podcast hasn't grown in some impressive way in these numbers. Mm-hmm. Does that bother you? Clearly it does because you've been using it as a measurement. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you want to do about it? Are you willing to do anything about it? Mm. Is now the time to do something about it? You know, and just sort of work through that. Um, the next thing that I would say is, when something catastrophic happens, lots of interesting things are going to happen. So maybe save some of your attention and bandwidth to be looking at the interesting things. Mm-hmm. I think that I had a very keen sense of this when I was a kid. There's a story that popped into my head while you were talking earlier about mm-hmm. one Sunday morning when my whole family was driving to church. And the car broke down and it stressed the hell out of my parents. Mm -hmm. Understandably. So, you know, when the car breaks down, that's like dollar signs are flashing (laughs) through your mind and all kinds of problems. And, you know, but me as a kid, I was like, something interesting is about to happen. We're going to diagnose this car. We're probably gonna have to walk somewhere. I've never been in this part of town. (laughs) I don't have to go to church. (laughs) It was like that childlike sense of, holy shit, everything's interesting now. Mm. And you lose that when (laughs) you actually have to be accountable and responsible for the consequences of that catastrophic thing happening. Mm. But maybe try to recover some of the childlike wonder because maybe this is the opportunity that changes everything in a way that's way better for you. Mm. Because I think there's also... Maybe to certain degrees, we all have some tendency to accept the mundane status quo because it's reliable. Mm. And there are times when I've been in a position or a job where I've known that it wasn't good for me. Mm. It wasn't progressing my career or growing me as a person or my skill set. It wasn't pointed in any direction that seemed good to me. So maybe this is the inverse problem. Like if, if to sin is to miss the mark, well, there's another way that you can, you can be in a situation in which you have no mark Hmm. and yet you continue showing up Hmm. and that's something like drowning, but it it can be easier to stay there than to eject because eject is moving into the chaos, moving into the unknown. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes when a a catastrophic failure happens, Maybe that's something of a blessing of like a lifeboat. Like you weren't, you weren't aiming for anything. Mm. So now you have to choose where to aim. How is that anything but a good thing? Here you stand and you get to choose Mm. what you want to shoot for. So congratulations. Good morning. What do you (laughs) want to do today? (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, and maybe this is a good full circle back to what I was saying at the beginning of this about, tricking yourself. And I want to revise that because I don't think it actually is a trick. I think it is a, a, well, it's a feature of your consciousness that you can attend to something at the expense of something else Mm -hmm. that gives you the ability to give things transformational attention. So, but be aware of that and use it carefully. 
and figure out how to change it when it needs changing. Mm -hmm. You know, at a certain point, you have to stop looking back and seeing things as a failure, despite the fact that they were successes in other metrics. Mm -hmm. And stop considering all of that and say, okay, today's for the choosing. Which way are we going? What do we want to accomplish now? Uh, totally reminds me of uh, this this week. I commented on this guy's um, post about Michael Phelps, and you know this guy basically trained. Michael Phelps trained for six years straight, almost every single day, and did more than anybody has almost ever done kind of thing like as far as training for swimming and it showed in his gold medals that he won and anyways but i I just kind of made the comment that i was yeah you know i started reading biographies and uh that was kind of whenever uh, out of college and that was kind of whenever i started seeing that you know a lot of times we only see the wow moments of people's lives like wow look what they accomplished right 32 gold medals or whatever it is, Michael Phelps, you know, but you don't realize how much work and effort and failure that came before those 32 gold medals, you know? Well, and I saw, I saw you comment on that and I read Mm -hmm. the post and Mm -hmm. it's like, not just how much work, but how much, how much like, like arbitrary anal type a (laughs) prescription of exactly what I do at exactly what time and exactly Mm -hmm. where my goggles go Mm -hmm. when I'm sitting on this particular bench, as opposed to this, you know, it's like, I was annoyed reading it. (laughs) Really? I was like, I was inspired because it's like the whole idea of like, like I'm, I'm going, I I guess the the part that, that grabbed me the most was visualizing. Mm -hmm. Like, he visualized every stroke, like he was doing every stroke and every turn in his head. And so that by the time he got in the water, it's like, he'd almost already, he's already swam the race, which reminds me of Alex Honnold. Oh, true. Like yeah. writing down every single move mm-hmm. in excruciating Finger details. holds and yeah, yeah, it's like everything. Yeah. But that's some, there's something about greatness and you don't get to do that overnight. I mean, that's like, that's something that a lot of times we'll like be like, Oh, look at that great work ethic. Well, there was a lot that led up to that great work ethic. Right. And I think a lot that, of experience, mm-hmm. meaning a lot of failure. Mm-hmm. And like, and, and that failure was taken seriously. And maybe the realization that if I want to be that great, then I need to be that regimented right. in how I, how I move forward. And again, that might not be for everyone, but I think there's a certain level of that, that we all need and that you can't, you can't do without unless you have some sort of goal, something to aim at. But I think that's the thing that's scary for us is because if we do aim at something, we're going to miss and it's going to show us that we fall short. Yeah. And so it's almost more comforting to not aim because your, your lack of uh, ability to attain that goal will never be apparent. So just better not to try because it'll become apparent that you, Mm. (laughs) that you failed, you know? And I think that's something that you, you take aim, you fire, you miss, you take aim, you fire, you get closer, you get further away. And and there's something like that. There's a honing, um, in that process somewhere. It reminds me, um, I don't know how you just said that, but you don't aim because if you don't aim, you can't miss. Mm-hmm. And that's just, but it's also just arbitrary mm. and it, it is tempting. And that this is something I learned from Peterson that 
there's an incentive to keep your goals ill-defined and fuzzy mm. because a goal is also the criteria for your failure. Mm. So if you don't define it, then well, you didn't really fail. Yeah. But you also didn't accomplish anything except for semi-accidentally. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know what my goal or what I'm aiming at. I, I feel inspired by this conversation. Like I feel much more hopeful and positive about my position right now. One thing that I've been trying to take seriously is that I want whatever I do next not to be a job simply to solve financial problems. I want to do something that I believe in and that inspire that is inspiring to me. And I haven't found that yet. And there's obviously like a, uh, reality is going to smack me pretty soon. Mm-hmm. I've got kids to feed and you know, it might get to the point where I've got to take something to solve the financial problems. Mm. But in the meantime, at least one thing that I'm aiming at is I've been writing a lot, mm. which is something that I've said that I've wanted to do for a long time. And actually all the way back in 2020, we had an episode in which I said that I was going to write some essays and mm-hmm. I've actually been doing it. It took me three years, <laughs> but I'm doing it. Yeah. Um, and so I'm aiming at that mm-hmm. right now, at least once one of the things I'm aiming at. And that's been really trying and really inspiring, meaningful. I've failed a couple of times. You know, we talked about that on a couple of episodes ago about some of the feedback that I got. And um, so I'm aiming at that and I'm, I'm publishing something twice a week on my, my sub stack. That's great, though. I mean, that's the whole idea of you're aiming at something and you're putting it out into the world and you're getting feedback. And many t- much of the feedback is, is like, well, I don't not much. Of it. I mean, there's there's a there's a conglomeration of like you know, positive feedback as far as, Oh wow, that's amazing. And you know, like we talked about last episode is like, Hey, you could be better. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, if you don't take aim at something, you're not going to get both of those types of feedback. Like, Oh wow. I'm so glad you said that. That was really inspiring to me. Hey, I disagree with this part of what you're talking about, you know, or (laughs) whatever it might be. But that's the whole thing is like, when you take aim, you're inviting engagement and that can be scary. Yeah, totally. Like you, you open a coffee shop. But if shop, you don't do something, you, you can't get feedback, get feedback on something you don't do. Uh, yeah. So you can't improve at something you don't do. Mm-hmm. And that's why people don't want to make decisions and be held responsible. It's, they want the government to take care of it because you don't want that responsibility for yourself. And there's a sort of an abdication of responsibility because it's easier you know, you don't, you don't have to take aim. You don't, or you're not held responsible for your actions, your decisions, because your actions, your decisions come from aiming at something mm. and you will be judged. And that's, that's life. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, that, was, that was such a dad thing. Let's <laughs> let's leave it right yeah, there. That's true. life, fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man up. Love you guys. Get over it. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming out to the shores. Yeah, cheers. Love cheers. you all out there. Bye. Bye.